and part eight of our alternate 100 project part eight Ed, how did we ever get this far i don't know i think it, it definitely puts us on an upper echelon uh than police academy bernie managed seven yeah and for shame because they you know there was still a little bit of life in that horse yeah i think, I think... the key is to never have steve gutenberg inv- involved rather than dropping in at the halfway point I, is Steve Gutenberg in any film on our list? <laughs> uh, no, probably the closest you'd get would be like if we had chosen the boys from Brazil. I, th- I, th- I think did we have Diner on the long list? He's oh, in yeah, Diner, have, isn't he? Yeah, we, we did have Diner on the long list. So there are a few, there are a few maybes, but mm. got cut at the last minute. Yeah, Gutenberg was on the long list, but didn't quite make it into the hundred. Um, uh, yeah, for those who have been listening, uh, you know we've got 100 films. We're picking uh, ones that aren't included uh, on the IMDb Top 250 or the BFI Top 100. You know the score from now on, so we'll just crack on uh, before we get into films. Uh, what 71 to 80? Uh, I believe they are. Um, let's hear that jingle one more time. The alternate 100. Okay, um, you know, if you if kind of uh, remember our first episode of the Alternate 100, uh, we sparked controversy by picking uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy, and it was controversial because uh, we, we're talking about films that perhaps aren't talked about as much or you know underappreciated films, and Midnight Cowboy, you know, won an Oscar for Best Picture, um, which is kind of appreciation. I think you could probably call it that. Um, but we kind of argued, quite successfully, I feel, uh, for its inclusion here. Um, we now have a second Best Picture winner, um, a film that is uh, often forgotten and uh, kind of very unfairly maligned for reasons we'll go into. Um, we're going to talk about Robert Redford's Ordinary People. I was thinking about the pigeon, you know, the one that used to hang around the garage and how he used to get on top of your car and he'd take off and you pulled out of the driveway. Well, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember how scared I used to get of <laughs> that whoosh, flap, 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 every time I started the car. Mm. Yeah, that was the closest we ever came to having a pet. You remember Buck asked you, he tried to talk you into uh, getting a dog, do you remember that? And he said, how about if it's just the size of a little football? You know, um... That that animal next door, that uh, Pepper or Pippin, whatever Pippin, his name Pippin, is, Pippin. he's not a very friendly dog. I, I don't care what Mr. McGreary says. What he really he's wanted really was not. the retriever he's... that was down the street for and sale. And every time That's that dog wanted, comes into this backyard and I try to get him out, he's... Um, unfairly maligned, mainly because it beat Raging Bull. Is that fair to say, Ed? Absolutely. Um, there was a really good article written by Mark Harris on Grantland, which was published this week, talking about the narratives that grew up around the Best Picture winners and what they talked about was uh, X and Y um, uh, Best Picture winners and or, or nominees and 
uh, X films are things that are very edgy. They're the ones that people think should win. So they're things like Citizen Kane, which should have won over How Green Is My Valley, Social Network, which should have won over The King's Speech, uh, Crash, obviously, uh, that's an example of a Y film beating an X film in Brokeback Mountain. And I think that in those kind of narratives, the one of the ultimate ones is Ordinary People because it beat... Uh, it beat Raging Bull and created this narrative around Martin Scorsese that he was owed an Oscar, which didn't really end for 25 years until he won for The Departed. Mm. And uh, because people had this thing of saying, you know, Raging Bull is this great masterpiece, it should have won, clearly the film that beat it wasn't deserving, because how could it be? And that has kind of obscured the fact that Ordinary People is actually a really fucking good film. Yeah, it's a real shame because um, I, I remember my first, um, the first time I ever heard about Ordinary People was in a kind of a, a quip about that whole affair where I think the person who either presented the Oscar or a presenter Oscar from the Oscars that night uh, said, you know, it's quite appropriate that such an ordinary movie uh, would win. And that's, you know, it's, it's nothing of the sort, is Ordinary People? Uh, no, I mean, it's if you kind of take its basic elements, it's kind of a safe movie because it's about the problems of a sort of middle-class suburban family. But I think in kind of denouncing it because of it, the, the genre and the milieu that it's based in, you also kind of uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater by ignoring the fact that it is, in terms of those films about kind of uh, suburbia and the the difficulties of... Uh, people who are in sort of loveless marriages or families that are going through a crisis it is one of the best examples of that particular type of film you'll find yeah it's it's kind of um in, in probably in terms of uh kind of on the acting front it features kind of career highlights from a lot of the participants i mean obviously um donald sutherland's been in a lot of great stuff but uh, mary tyler moore you know a kind of a rare dramatic performance from her and then kind of people who went on to be uh, perhaps more successful in television, people like Judd Hirsch, um, you know, turning fantastic supporting turns. And it's just, uh, you can tell it's a, a film that's directed by an actor. Yeah, he, he really does bring out the best in all those people. And in, in particular, Timothy Hutton, who, you know, was a very young actor uh, at the time and who is, except in the, in, when it comes to giving out awards, he is the lead of that film. It's his story, but. They obviously felt that he had a better chance of winning in Best Supporting, and that was true because he won Best Supporting Actor that year. But he doesn't exhibit any of the kind of awkwardness you get in young actors. He has sort of a certain degree of confidence, but also he is able to draw on kind of really raw emotions when he has to talk about his feelings of guilt over the death of his brother. And uh, he really holds his own against some actors who are... uh, you know, as you say, they're at the height of their powers and doing really fantastic work. Yeah, and it's a melodrama, but in in kind of like the best possible way. Um, it's it's kind of not trite or overwrought, even though it's dealing with kind of big emotions. It does so in a very kind of uh, intimate and kind of sensitive way. Yeah, it's it's kind of in the vein of something like what Douglas Sirk did in the fifties. It doesn't have the over satirical edge to them but it definitely has that sense of taking the emotions of ordinary people and putting them uh, in a and making them uh, dramatic without making them kind of soapy 
which is always the danger when you try and take those kind of stories and put them on the big screen. Um, do you think that, like, it gets... Uh, I mean, obviously, we've, we've kind of said the uh, reason people forget it is the is the um, the Scorsese thing, and th- there's a lot of truth to that, but do you think that... Um, it's also kind of unfairly bracketed in with with things like Terms of Endearment and Out of Africa, some of those Oscar winners from the 80s that were a bit, I don't know, bland, should we say? It probably uh, does. I mean, those ones, yeah, when, when you say those ones, that, that list, it kind of all conjures up a particular image of a certain kind of Oscar movie. It, it literally kind of defines the idea of, what an Oscar movie should be, which is that you know it's got to be worthy, it's got to have uh, great performances and maybe not the most uh, expressive direction. Uh, but I think that, and that that association definitely hurts it. And I think that what is great about ordinary people is it doesn't try and uh, pull away from that sort of thing. It doesn't try and act like it's a deep and important film in kind of, or, or it doesn't feel kind of portentous doesn't feel like it's trying to make any great big statement it just tries to tell its own story in a way that's compelling and that's interesting and you know in doing that it, it perhaps has some bigger insights to say about the nature of grief and of uh, the nature of the american family in the middle class but it feels like that stuff is second secondary to the uh, to the needs of telling an interesting story. Uh, our next film uh, on our list is a documentary, uh, one of those, you know, truthful films they have now. Um, we're talking about the fog of war. The choice of incendiary bombs. Where did that come from? I think the the, the issue is not so much incendiary bombs. I think the issue is. In order to win a war, should you kill 100,000 people in one night by firebombing or any other way? LeMay's answer would be clearly yes. McNamara, do you mean to say that instead of killing 100,000, burning to death 100,000 Japanese civilians in that one night, we should have burned to death a lesser number or none and then had our soldiers cross the beaches in Tokyo and been slaughtered in the tens of thousands? Is that what you're proposing? Is that moral? Is that wise? Why was it necessary to drop the nuclear bomb if LeMay was burning up Japan? And he went on from, from Tokyo to firebomb other cities. 58% of Yokohama. Yokohama is roughly the size of Cleveland. 58% of Cleveland destroyed. Tokyo is roughly the size of New York. 51% of New York destroyed. 99% of the equivalent of Chattanooga, which was Toyama. 40% of the equivalent of Los Angeles, which was Nagoya. This was all done before the dropping of the nuclear bomb, which, by the way, was dropped by LeMay's command. Proportionality should be a guideline in war. Uh, the Fog of War is uh, Errol Morris uh, at his kind of most powerful uh, Obviously famous for things like the Thin Blue Line. Um, but The Fog of War is, I don't know, probably call it his most candid film. It's one of his most candid, and I think it's one of its, his most, uh, uh, certainly up to that time, it's one of his most political. Mm. Um, in the film, he interviews uh, Robert S. McNamara, who is the who was the uh, Secretary of Defence during the 
Kennedy administration and during some of the and the Johnson administration and I believe some of the early years of the Nixon administration and he basically was one of the key architects of the American uh, campaign in Vietnam and he talked to Errol Morris in sort of 2002 2003 and sat down for a very uh, open and wide-ranging interview in which he talks about all the uh, mistakes that he made whilst uh, in that position and the effect of the war on him personally and you know what he would have done different and uh, it's it's a remarkable film even in terms of Errol Morris's work which is pretty remarkable in itself because you rarely see someone who makes those sort of policy decisions uh, being so reflective on the effect of it and actually sitting there and saying for 90 minutes yeah I was wrong about a lot of things and it's it's kind of a great example of Errol Morris's uh, technique as a documentarian he he uh, uses this technique anyone who's seen his films will recognize it where uh, he sets the camera up in front of the subject he's interviewing and, and kind of puts uh, a device in front of it the same way that um, a newsreader looks at the the kind of prompter so they can actually look straight into the camera and read the uh, uh, read the text of, of the news um, the subject that uh, Morris is interviewing is, is seeing his face um, so what you're getting as a viewer is is the subject looking right into the lens but speaking directly to Errol Morris and what you get in The Fog of War is Robert McNamara talking about huge decisions he's made or things he's been a part of which has affected you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands millions of lives um in both positive and negative ways um and you know you can see the effect that some of those decisions has on him he breaks down several times in the interview and unlike in other documentaries they don't zoom in for the big kind of money shot of someone crying it's just there and you take it at face value yeah, there's a real intensity to a lot of Errol Morris's work, and I think that what makes uh, this one stand out is it's only a single subject. Uh, usually he'll, in something like The Thin Blue Line or Tabloid, he'll have multiple subjects who will cut to to kind of form a tapestry of a particular story he's inter- inter- uh, interested in, but because he's only really telling the story of this one man using his own words and he is looking directly at us there's a a real sense of uh, intimacy and there's a sense that he is not holding anything back or filtering it i mean obviously he probably is on some level because uh he's still it's still like 30 years late after the war ended and he's he has he is removed from it in time and and distance in a great uh, to a great extent but that also lends a weight to his words because he's clearly had decades to think about the impact of of what he did and when we talk about the decisions that McNamara has made the ones that he's kind of forced to reevaluate uh, in the fog of war uh, we're talking about a kind of complex series of of decisions which range from essentially greenlighting the firebombing of Tokyo in World War Two and I say firebombing uh, because Tokyo is a is a wooden city that kind of you know that's a calculated thing that would uh, cause the deaths of uh, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of civilians, and then to the other extreme, he was pretty much single-handedly responsible in making it the law to have seatbelts in cars, uh, a decision that saved 
millions of lives uh, across the uh, the kind of decades and up to now. Uh, a very complex individual, and even after watching for two hours, um, you still feel like there's so much more to get to. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the great advantages of Morris's uh, technique, which is that he is someone who's obviously very interested in exploring every facet of his subjects as possible. Um, he has a very kind of wide-ranging approach to interviews where he kind of touches on everything he can. And I think in assembling the film and using his particular kind of uh, style, which mixes the interviews with uh, visual abstraction and an amazing score by Philip Glass, he really does uh, offer this kind of fascinating portrait that doesn't seem to fall on any particular uh, side in terms of evaluating whether or not uh, McNamara was a good person or a great person, just kind of offering a, a snapshot of him and what he feels at the end of his at the end of his life, and obviously he'd had many years to consider the work that he'd done. Mm. Um, for people who are kind of don't perhaps remember, um, or you know, the kind of immediacy of of McNamara's political career. I think you know when when we were kind of growing up, he was. Uh, president of the World Bank, I think, mm-hmm. um, and he wasn't actually actively involved in politics. If you can say that being in the World Bank is not being involved in politics, um, but um, I, we, when I saw it, I was like, well, why can't El Morris do this with you know the modern day equivalent, someone like Donald Rumsfeld? And then uh, El Morris did, but it wasn't anywhere near as successful. No, I think there the the problem is more the subject matter. Than uh, Morris's technique because mm. Donald Rumsfeld does not strike me as a man who thinks that he's done wrong. Um, I think that the problem is that McNamara is someone who clearly is kind of racked by, on some level, racked by the guilt of the the death that he was responsible for, and that lends such a power to uh, to the fog of war. Whereas uh, Rumsfeld is kind of while there's a certain degree of insight, you get the sense that there's something uh, he is putting up a wall, and they, there's a reason why the uh, the the tagline for the film on the poster is "Why is this man smiling?" Mm. Um, and I think there's also the film itself is slightly more partisan because even though Morris has often expressed quite a uh, a fascination with Rumsfeld, he obviously comes at it from saying. Uh, with a, a degree of righteous anger that perhaps he doesn't feel as keenly with uh, with McNamara, because again, you know, it, the, the the difference in time between the war and the film is so much shorter. You know, Vietnam War ended in 1973. Fog of War is made in the early 2000s. Viet, uh, the Iraq War still going on uh, in some extent or another, and you know, and the film was made in uh, 2013. So. It's kind of hard to have as much distance there on either side of the uh, of Morris or Rumsfeld. Yeah. Oh, for shame. Because uh, it's would... still it, it's still a really interesting film. I would recommend people check that one out. But obviously, uh, the Fog of War is is better for a lot of reasons. Yeah. In fact, all of Morris's uh, back catalogue is uh, is worth uh, checking out. Um, most of it's kind of widely available on stuff like Netflix and Amazon Video. It's all pretty much there so um, be a deer and check it out um, 
The next film we're going to talk about is uh, one that passed everybody in the world by. Uh, no one seemed to see it, and when we made the long list for this, um, and you said you'd seen it, um, you were the only other person I've ever met who has seen this film. Uh, a film from a few years ago, uh, from the little island of New Zealand, uh, a film called Out of the Blue. Incredibly bleak film, out of the blue. Uh, it's a kind of very intimate, uh, immediate uh, kind of uh, drama, I suppose, uh, about the Aramona massacre that happened in 1990, uh, where uh, a kind of a lone gunman uh, kind of went on a, uh, a killing spree, uh, a kind of a horrifying killing spree. Um, out of the blue kind of deals with that from the perspective of many of the residents of the town where it took place is in Otago um, and uh, does so with kind of uh, a kind of chilling uh, effect, doesn't it, Ed? Yeah, I mean, the the title says it all in a lot of ways. It depicts it as an event that doesn't really have that much of an explanation. The first probably 15, 20 minutes of the film, you are introduced to a lot of the people in this town that's clearly a very sleepy town that nothing much happens in uh you see people going about their lives and then you're and you're introduced along with that to the guy that carries out the killing and then uh suddenly the film kind of flips the guy picks up a rifle and just starts uh shooting people you know at random going through the village and terrorizing the town and uh it's such a shocking and startling event that no one really seems to understand what's happening for a great period of time um, because it's a town that this sort of thing doesn't happen in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it kind of um, uh, manages to kind of be quite small and kind of uh, very busy with its kind of cinematography, but also feel quite kind of uh, atmospheric without kind of loading it up. It's shot in a very kind of realistic way. It's not uh, put together in kind of any kind of exploitative or kind of the tension comes naturally rather than being uh, kind of uh, built around scares and jumps and, and kind of what we'd consider a traditional kind of action thriller tropes. Yeah, there's there are long periods of, um, of inaction, of people hiding to avoid being detective or a, uh, a, a woman who has been shot kind of crawling across the road and hoping not to get shot again and trying to help other people. And there's a lot of there's just a lot of a focus on the uh, what it takes to survive something like that, and how uh, such an arbitrary act can turn people's lives on their heads. And but it also does find time for some, particularly towards the end, some very kind of startling sequences, such as um, there's lots of shots at night with kind of fires going on in the background, where the film becomes briefly quite apocalyptic. Mm which uh, is, uh, again, it's not exploitative, it's mainly, it's just recreating what happened on that day for a lot of people. But it's, uh, yeah, I think that the film handles its shifts in tone and style uh, really, really immaculately. Um, the film is kind of anchored by a central performance uh, from Carla Urban, who 
uh, kind of came to prominence for most people in um, those other films that came out of New Zealand. The, the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, has also gone on to do some quite good stuff. He's he's, he's Judge Dredd and he's uh, he's Bones now. Um, but out of the blues, a, a really kind of understated performance for him. Yeah, as the the man, the police officer who is forced into trying to resi- to deal with the, uh, the the massacre and to kind and and as one of the few people in the area who's actually trained with a gun, mm-hmm. being placed in a situation where he has to be, you know, a hero, but he's not at all a movie hero. He's just a, a regular guy who's not prepared for this situation uh, or or not never expected to be put in this situation. Has to deal with the best that he can. And uh, yeah, it's it's a really understated performance, and it's one of those performances like Eric Banner in Chopper, where he's so good in it that every time I see him, I always feel a little bit disappointed that he hasn't been quite that good again. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's it's something that like is it's very easy to look at Carla Banner as a a kind of a, a bit of a lunk because uh, some of the work he does um, can be a bit meat-headed sometimes, but I think that's just the characters he plays. Um, he's really good in that, uh, a really kind of quiet performance. So, say a, a man trying to, kind of totally ill-equipped to deal with something, uh, kind of completely outrageous happening, uh, doing the best that he can, and ultimately kind of coming through in a fashion. I mean, like we say, it's very sensitively handled. Uh, just like to point out that the the title for it in kind of uh, South America was Twenty Four Hours of Fury," <laughs> which perhaps kind of leads you down the wrong path. Um, so don't go for it if you're after kind of uh, commando style style kind of action. But do watch it if you're after uh, an incredibly tense, sparse, and bleak film, uh, which you know I can only recommend so much. Which is you know putting it as one of our hundred films. Um, so yeah, out of the blue, get it watched. Uh, our next film uh, we're going to talk about uh is uh, a film from the early 60s uh which in so many ways was miles ahead of its time uh we're talking about John Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate Go on get out here Senator Senator Eisenhower I'd like to verify that number sir How many communists did you say Oh uh, Major I said they were exactly uh, I've absolutely proved there are 104 card carrying communists in the defense department at this time How many sir uh, <clears throat> 275, and that's absolutely all I have to say on the subject at this time. Come here. Major, how many did he say? Oh, boys, please. Major, how many did he say? I talk about it being way ahead of its time, um, subject matter-wise, politically, uh, kind of violence, depiction, all of those things, some of the techniques it uses, um, definitely, uh, you know, a good 10, 15 years Um kind of before it was, you know, all those things were kind of widespread and accepted in mainstream cinema. Yeah, you can really see it as an an ancestor of something like The Parallax View, which mm. we talked about a few episodes ago in this series, in that it's a film that expresses a, a, a deep uh, cynicism about politicians or about the, uh, the way in which politicians are packaged and suggests the idea that uh, and in that in that situation kind of uh is very prescient in terms of the turmoil of the next sort of ten fifteen years of American politics where the trust in uh, public officials was officials was completely shattered by uh watergate in vietnam and and things like that but 
it also ties in taps into what were very contemporary theories which were you know the the stories of uh brainwashing being carried out by communists which is something that had been uh demonstrated to be being practiced and the idea of and fears of people who could be your neighbors secretly being communist but even so secretly communist that they don't realize that they're communist neighbors that it's all been implanted in their minds and the deadly effects of that yeah the, the film is is essentially about uh, the kind of uh, aftermath of the uh, Korean War um, and specifically a kind of squad of soldiers which uh, includes um, Lawrence Harvey and uh, Frank Sinatra uh, and a few other character actors <laughs> um, who uh, are kind of captured in Korea brainwashed and returned to America um, and yeah it, the, the kind of one of the, the kind of standout moments of the film is when we see um, the brainwashing sequences and the, the flashbacks because uh, all of the soldiers who go through the procedure are kind of haunted by the same dream and uh, we see the dream presented in a really startling way where we see the soldiers being brainwashed but then we also see what they think they're seeing so they're being kind of brainwashed by um, this kind of Korean colonel in front of a collection of just uh, villains and ne'er-do-wells in a, in a kind of lab but the soldiers themselves are seeing a presentation on horticulture a kind of women's society in, a, in the lobby of a hotel and we see that unfold and the editing of those sequences is absolutely spectacular sometimes we shift locations, characters and time all in the one shot it's quite remarkably done yeah it, it is it really does uh, it is really surprising to see something that is in a lot of ways a very naturalistic uh, political thriller throw in these moments of uh, where the editing verges on the kind of the surreal mm. uh, in that regard and I think it does a really good job of uh, getting into the headspace of the of the characters in a way that uh, hadn't really been done before, certainly not something that is so obviously intended for mainstream consumption. This kind of little dollop of, of um, the avant-garde thrown in. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of gets across this sense of real unease and not quite knowing what's what, um, not knowing who to believe um, at all during the film. Um, also, kind of one of the best things about the film is um, an absolutely terrifying performance from Angela Lansbury, who uh, people have kind of, uh, who grew up in kind of the 80s and 90s will just remember as cuddly old uh, Jessica uh, Fletcher from the Murder, She Wrote TV series. But here she plays an absolutely horrifying, uh, domineering, really creepy Oedipal kind of, uh, kind of political figure um, that is uh, as disturbing as it is uh, terrifying. Yeah, I think that's one of the elements of the film that has really uh, has really improved as time has gone on. It, obviously, it was a great performance at the time, but um, obviously the context of her future, of her later career, adds a, a, an even greater sense of unease to that performance. You know, the idea of seeing someone who is so who who we all think of as being sort of very cuddly, friendly, family friendly, seeing her in that in. Uh, in Murder, She Wrote, or like Bedknobs and Broomsticks, seeing her in the context of something like The Manchurian Candidate is quite different. And it's also one of the reasons why 
the Jonathan Demi remake, which I do like for in a lot of ways, uh, doesn't have quite the same power because even though Meryl Streep's a very good actress, she's not someone you associate with kind of very cuddly and tame roles. So the reveal that she is manipulative and uh, and that she has ulterior motives isn't really that surprising. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've never seen the remake. Um, the way it struck me as, uh, as kind of a little bit um, kind of redundant, mainly on the basis of like the political climate that is being made in. Um, what kind of what's the context? What's the backdrop of of the remake? Is it like the Gulf uh, War or something? Yeah, it's the, the Gulf War instead of the uh, instead of the Korean War, and uh, there's it, it, the Denzel character in it is a lot less uh, together than Frank Sinatra's character is in the original. Because uh, the Sinatra character, if I remember correctly, he's obviously haunted by these experiences, but he's someone who seems to be handling it in a very uh, typically American way, and mm-hmm. that you know he's just kind of getting on with his life. Whereas the Denzel Washington character in the remake is very much of the mold of the veteran who's hor- horrifically scarred by the experience and uh, is treated as a kind of a social uh, pariah because of his experiences. That's so, probably because Denzel had one eye on uh, on a statue, probably. <laughs> uh, it's very, very possible, but it's uh, it, 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 in in that respect, it it more reflects the climate of you know what we think of the way that veterans are treated by the American uh, army and society now. Whereas in the sixties and fifties, there was still the idea of the the image of the guys coming home from World War Two and coming back to. Uh, relative prosperity, whereas mm. obviously things like Vietnam and the Gulf War, though that wasn't really the case. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a pretty good performance from Frank Sartre, someone who's who's known for not liking many takes, and generally <laughs> his his performances are kind of generally trade on his uh, persona rather than any kind of acting performance. But he's pretty good in that kind of really sweaty kind of uh, uh, kind of angsty performance. Um, which you know he sometimes gets unfair. He was a great actor, and we kind of sometimes wish that if he'd have done more than one take of things, he probably would have been quite good. <laughs> yeah, if he'd done more stuff like that, and the man with the golden arm, mm, where yeah, he definitely. does, where he does suggest a certain degree of, you know, sweaty desperation, which, you know, you don't really see in something like Guys and Dolls, where you get the feeling he's just kind of swanning on screen and then going off for a martini. Yeah, yeah, which is also you know a decent approach. You don't see Denzel Washington doing that. <laughs> um, but yeah, a Manchurian Candidate definitely um, right up there in those kind of uh, uh, political thrillers um, that Three Days in the Condor Parallax View those three, one hell of a trilogy and a great triple bill um, ok, uh, next film we're going to uh, talk about is a film by one of our favourite directors uh, I'm sorry Ed, speaking for you uh, here, uh, Billy Wilder but one of his uh, perhaps more complex and kind of difficult to assess works. Uh, we're talking about the private life of Sherlock Holmes. My dear Sherlock, there are certain affairs that do not come within the province of the private detective. They have to be dealt with on an altogether different level. In other words, you want me to stay within my limits? I do indeed. And speaking of limits, what exactly is Jonah limited? Sherlock, when I said drop this case, it was not merely a suggestion, it was an order. By whose authority? By the authority of Her Majesty's government. I hope I have made myself clear. Perfectly. And now, if you'll excuse me, gentlemen. Uh, 
I say difficult to assess because he didn't really finish it. Uh, he had a lot of problems with this film, didn't he? And, and kind of uh, the true version is is, is uh, kind of a little bit like um, uh, what's called what's that Orson Welles film called? Touch of Evil. Uh, my, my, um, yeah, Touch of Evil was kind of pieced together after he died uh, from kind of uh, bits and pieces that he, his instructions and and uh, original scripts and things. Um, yeah, kind of butchered by the studio and then kind of put together in perhaps the right order. Yeah, the, I think the the problem was that they started making it as uh, what was going to be kind of a roadshow production, which was the idea that you were going to make this uh, like a four-hour long movie consisting of several Sherlock Holmes stories, and then you would take it and you would show it to audiences and this kind of big presentation. And then I think while it was being made, there were several examples of that which, which failed or the uh, studio studios in general just decided that they needed to move away from that style of filmmaking and so the film was cut down drastically so it's now only it's less than two hours long and uh, even though those two hours are, are great and it's a really really fantastically interesting film and, it, and has a few interesting takes on the Sherlock character the uh, the way in which it had to be reshaped from the original vision means that the version we have is still not the version that perhaps uh, Billy Wilder wanted to put out. Um, and it, kind of troublesome, pretty clearly in many ways, other than its production history, but it chooses to focus on some of the uh, perhaps more salacious aspects of uh, um, Sherlock Holmes' character, um, most uh, uh, kind of prominently his uh, love of the drugs, uh, and also his kind of uh, thinly veiled homosexuality, um, which in other adaptations is kind of sl- suggested at or kind of, uh, you know, hinted at. In this, it's kind of pretty blatant, uh, and that's in the version that's been edited down, um, but done so with a real kind of uh, gusto and relish. I'm kind of reminded of there's a great scene where uh, kind of the labyrinthine plot involves a kind of Russian circus. Uh, performers, as far as I can remember, and there's a bit where he, uh, Sherlock Holmes comes into uh, into the circus and, and they send women over to him, and then it's this kind of musical sequence with with no dialogue at all, and then these kind of whispers get passed down the line, referring to Sherlock Holmes, and then the women step out and they send two fellas down uh, to dance with him, which is uh, a really kind of funny way of of kind of getting that across without being uh, uh, too kind of uh, overt about it, but uh, probably the best film that does that with the Sherlock Holmes character yeah I think that in terms of the drugs it's probably more it's it's certainly the best in terms of doing a faithful adaptation because then you have something like the 7% solution which is uh, entirely about uh, Sherlock Holmes and the idea of him as a drug user and the effect that it could have had and uh, going to so far as to suggest that his dreams of being the detective were all in his head. Um, very few of the uh, of the adaptations tend to take the drug use thing and make it a core part of his character. Uh, it's usually just something that's referenced or not uh, not included at all. And uh, I think that it, as an exploration of that and and doing it in a way that's funny but also has elements of kind of melancholy to it, it, it really. It really works and, and makes for an interesting addition to the to the Sherlock Holmes canon. Um, as far as the plot goes, um, it's kind of uh, one of the more crackers. Uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, mysteries involves 
without wanting to say too much, uh, lots of midgets, a lot less monster, um, and Christopher Lee, who uh, I have to say plays one of my favourite uh, Mycrofts. Yeah, he is one of the absolute highlights. Um, every scene that he in is just uh, a great sign of that kind of mellifluous campiness that he brings to a lot of his roles, and particularly during that period when he was at the height of his powers as um, in terms of all his work with Hammer Horror and things like that. He brings a, a, a great uh, presence, but he also uh, he also plays off of Robert Stevens very well, and Colin Blakely, who play uh, Holmes and Watson, uh, respectively. It's just a bunch of very, because it's very uh, it's very dialogue heavy, as you would expect from a Billy Wilder film. Um, there's lots of scenes of just really, really good actors trading really, really funny and interesting dialogue with each other. Yeah, and it's it kind of makes you wonder. It's one of those films where. Um, because you never got to see the complete version, but the version you got to see was pretty good but flawed. Just how good the the kind of director's intent would have been, and that's not the first time that Billy Wilder had that. He had like something like Irma Laduce, um was very similar. And that was a musical. I mean, if anyone doesn't know, Irma Laduce is a film that's nearly three hours long, um, but it was a musical, and all the songs got cut out, and it's still three hours long. Yeah, he. I think that's one of the signs of uh, of this, the perils of being such a uh, being a studio director because obviously he was one of the, the best at making studio pitches under that particular system but obviously that means that you are limited in terms of how much uh, freedom you have in expressing yourself and sometimes he would have the capital to make a film and it would turn out exactly like he wanted like something like uh, Ace in the Hole which obviously we talked about before which he only really got made the way he wanted because of the success of Sunset Boulevard and things like that but usually you know with uh because he made he made nearly a film a year for a lot of his career uh some of them you're just not going to have that much control over uh, mm. which is a terrible shame yeah and i mean it's just kind of uh, seems crazy to me now that like he made this film in 1970 and you know he'd already done some of his best work by this point you kind of figure that he would be above that kind of thing but but obviously not yeah and he was also uh, at the point where he was about to become sort of an anachronistic filmmaker because uh, when he was doing stuff like the front page which is obviously an adaptation of a play from the 1930s and he was playing off of uh you know his the style of filmmaking that he made at a time when hollywood is un- was undergoing a dramatic shift you know, he never really fit in with that that generation in the way that someone like John Hughes, uh, John um, Houston, mm. did, because he obviously was of the of a similar sort of generation. And I think they actually they may have released their first films in the same year. I think they both started in nineteen forty one or around that time. Um, John Houston was able to adapt to the changing scene around him, but Billy Wilder was obviously someone who had perfected his craft in a certain way and. Uh, I think the the private life of Sherlock Holmes is one of the the last gasps of his sort of great period and his particular uh, the, of his particular style. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, a, a real curio uh, the film. If you can get hold of it, I think it's been kind of deleted on DVD. It's uh, uh, it's out there somewhere, uh, but you can if you can get it, by all means do because uh, it's bloody great. Um, and we're moving now from Sherlock Holmes. Uh, to something uh, altogether different, um, something that is so fetch. Uh, that's correct. Our next film 
is Mean Girls. How do I even begin to explain Regina George? Regina George is flawless. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. I hear her hair is insured for $10,000. I hear she does car commercials in Japan. Her favorite movie is Varsity Blues. One time she met John Stamos on a plane and he told her she was pretty. One time she punched me in the face. It was awesome. Uh, a late addition to our top 100 uh, when we realised we didn't have any <laughs> team movies on there and we both love them. Um, this was uh, kind of a no-brainer really. Um, uh, kind of came at the end of that uh, team movie boom uh, that we've talked about previously. It started with uh, kind of Clueless and uh, kind of kind of started to grind to a halt uh, after Mean Girls. Um, a film that on paper doesn't look particularly um, kind of original or fresh, something that kind of explores a lot of those um, uh, kind of typical uh, high school uh, milieus and characters and, and stereotypes, uh, but does so with, with you know, real gusto, vigour and uh, kind of a, a astonishing energy. Yeah, I think it helps tremendously that the film is written by Tina Fey, who mm. had was coming off of, or, or maybe still at the time, was working on Saturday Night Live because I think it was produced by Lord Michaels, uh, Mean Girls, and uh, was years away, a few years away from creating Thirty Rock. And I think that she is someone who, you know, if you read her her memoir, Bossy Pants, talks about being someone who wasn't was kind of awkward and ostracized in school. I think she is someone who has a real uh, empathy and affinity for outsiders and weirdos and I think that the film one of the reasons the film works so well is it is a kind of vaguely anthropological examination of all these different uh, cliques written uh, from the perspective of someone who knows those that that society uh, all too well yeah um, it's kind of also Refreshing. I kind of rewatched this the other day because um, it's I think ten years since Mean Girls came out. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much um, refreshing to watch it and realise that for a while Lindsay Lohan was really good. Yeah, she's. I think in that definitely, and also in the Freaky Friday remake from around the same period, she is someone who just has a very uh, natural, funny, charming uh, screen presence, and she doesn't really have any of the. Uh, precociousness that she had when she was like a, uh, a child star in stuff like the Parent Trap remake. Um, she had kind of grown past that and she was really maturing into someone who had something like, you know, the natural uh, screen presence of something like Marilyn Monroe who could really uh, just draw attention and be really funny at the same time and who had a willingness to be uh, to be ridiculous because the film does require her to do things like very broad physical stuff like fall into the uh, trash can when she's not paying attention, <laughs> but also has some very uh, very subtle, well-observed uh, character work. So it's a film that allowed her to pretty much do everything that you would need to do in, in terms of a, a comedy performance. Um, why, do you, why did we pick uh, Mean Girls over any of the other team movies you could have had, um, Mean Clueless being one of them? Um, is it just that little bit of extra bite that it has? Yeah, I think it's the extra bite, and I think it's also just so incredibly funny and quotable. Um, to look, uh, show you behind the curtain a little bit, listeners, um, I tend to edit these uh, top 100 episodes, and part of that involves 
choosing quotes and clips and things to put in between the discussions and uh, uh, Mean Girls is probably the toughest <laughs> I've had in, in choosing a clip uh, because there are so many jokes in the film that are so fantastically funny and that are so uh, just kind of perfectly uh, delivered and constructed comic gems that I think that's that's one of the things and also it has a a streak of uh, mild absurdism that you also see in uh, in full effect in Thirty Rock, which is you know when you see things like um, like uh, whenever uh, uh, Lindsay Lohan starts talking about the act, the antics of the kids in her class as being sort of like animals she saw in Africa, and all the actors start acting like chimps and stuff, mm. and it's just done in a very kind of matter of fact way and then it just kind of drops back to reality or even just there's just loads of little funny moments like when the riot starts in the uh in the third act the first thing tim meadows does is he just grabs a baseball bat <laughs> and it's just a really funny little moment that the the principal of the school's first response is just to grab a baseball bat because he's just going to start smashing heads yeah and, and he, just... he's in a vest as well at that point <laughs> yeah <laughs> and there's just loads of little things like that and and also i think that it has what a lot of those films have, uh, or a lot of really good teen films have, like Clueless, it has a, a kind of vaguely feminist uh, slant, but it actually foregrounds it in the Tina Fey character, and it out and out says things like, you know, girls shouldn't call each other sluts and whores because it gives men the the option to call them those sort of things. I think that the fact that it manages to be a really funny comedy, a really incisive satire, and to have a genuine kind of uh, positive and and interesting message underpinning it all is one of the things that really sets it apart. Yeah, and it's probably the only film on our list that features um, an Amy Poehler uh, kind of bodged boob job. <laughs> um, yeah, it also it also helps that it has uh, an absolutely fantastic cast of uh, of like SSNL ex SNL uh, actors, but also that central quartet of uh or you know quintet if you include lizzie kaplan um is is just really fantastically funny absolutely um yeah mean girls fantastically funny and uh our next film is not fantastically funny uh there you go look at that for a segue um our next film is uh near dark caleb colton no longer belongs to our world we give him a week to see if we can call him one of us he belongs to hers but you have to learn to kill he belongs to theirs i want to kill he makes you kill tonight and they all belong to the night it's a story as old as time ed uh boy meets girl uh girl bites boy on neck uh, girl turns out to be vampire boy turns into vampire has to join girl's vampire family uh, and is kind of forced into killing people even though he doesn't really want to um, it's just so well trodden isn't it that, that path yeah it's pretty de rigueur yeah. um, but I think, I think they added a fresh spin on it uh, Catherine Bigelow brings her particular brand of kind of hard eyed uh uh, macho aesthetic to it in a way that makes it interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough. Um, sorry, it's a um, a very interesting take on the uh, vampire film. It's kind of a bit western. It's a bit kind of noir. Um, 
but it's it's very kind of uh, punchy and dark and uh, features some kind of brilliant writing. Uh, there's a, there's one of my favourite, I think, lines in films is when, uh, obviously, this, this young girl walks into a room full of vampires and they're all up and she's like, why are you up so late? And Bill Paxton turns to her and says, we keep unusual hours. Um, <laughs> because obviously they're vampires, like, yeah, just explain that for those in the cheap seats. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of wonderfully written and there's a really kind of evocative way of um, uh, kind of bringing those vampires, uh, kind of uh, making them... Um, there's no kind of crucifixes and garlic. It's the only thing that really stops them is sunlight and there's these kind of fantastic sequences where they're kind of burning up or, or they're kind of racing the, the, the kind of the dawn, as it were, um, to try and kind of... Uh, uh, stay alive um, but at the heart of the film uh, despite all the kind of action and all that kind of stuff um, is a kind of really weird love story which given most vampire films are weird love stories this is really weird yeah I think that it it definitely does an interesting thing in terms of the vampire uh, movie in that it plays it all with a certain degree of realism like you say it gets rid of a lot of the gothic tropes of crucifixes and garlic but it keeps a lot of the men- the dark sexual undercurrent and menace that is the staple of those gothic uh, vampire stories, and it just transposes them to a a new location. I think that the uh, the way that uh, Bigelow makes these uh, these kind of archetypal uh, monsters feel contemporary and fresh and interesting is one of the things that makes the film so good. You know, it's not. It doesn't feel indebted to previous vampire movies. It feels more like a reaction to them. Yeah, and it's it's definitely a kind of it's it's edge um, kind of sets it apart, um, especially in the kind of a couple of notable sequences. One of which is uh, when the vampire family, because it's a family of of vampires who have just kind of stuck together over time, um, they kind of go for a drink in a bar. Um, but end up killing everybody in a scene that is kind of feels so dangerous and horrible and just unpleasant and squeamish to watch. It's it's a real kind of uh, calling card for Bigelow. She she's kind of really good at that kind of thing. Um, and I think if you see stuff like The Hurt Locker and um, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, she is really good at wringing tension uh, out of um, scenes that could be so easy to go over the top with. Yeah, I think that the the thing that sets it apart from something like The Lost Boys, which came out at the same sort of time, mm. is that it revels in the destruction of the characters, but it also makes you uh, feel uh, you feel the threat of it all. It's not particularly campy or over the top, and it actually is quite grisly and, and hard to watch in places. And I think that um, one of the things that a lot of other vampire films that try and do modern vampire stuff stuff like uh stuff like blade for example which is a film i actually quite enjoy but the 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 way they turn vampires into this kind of weird aristocracy and they kind of really um emphasize the high camp of it all whereas near dark depicts them as just kind of low lives and i like the idea of depicting vampires as people who are really are kind of subsist. They they have all of this great power and ability, but at, at the end of the day, they're just kind of subsistence killers. Mm. 
Uh, they do a really cool thing as well with the vampires um, that they've all kind of got their own backstory that they've been around for ages. There's a bit where um, uh, someone asks Lance Henriksen how old he is. And this is a film that's kind of set in the mid-80s. And he just says, um, let's put it this way, I fought for the South and we lost. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of this idea that he was just some kind of Civil War soldier and got bitten uh, somewhere and, you know, it's just been knocking around since kind of chewing on necks um you really that you really kind of get that from the acting and i think it's um no coincidence that bigelow casts those cameron regulars i think at the time they were seeing each other while they were married they might have been um and you know paxton um paxton and uh, uh i can't remember her name now the, the woman who plays vasquez in in aliens and also mm-hmm. henrikson uh all appear in near dark which was released, I think, the year after, but it disappeared without a trace in the dark. It didn't really do anything at all. Yeah, I think it was probably overshadowed by something like Lost Boys, which obviously was a little more accessible and, and overtly campy. Um, I don't think that uh, people were quite ready for the, uh, the, the the real darkness of Near Dark and the way that it depicts, certainly the way that the vampires die in it is something that's done in a way that is uh, really kind of uh, eerie and hard to watch because it's essentially just people burning to death. Yeah. Um, I think it was one of the the first films that I can remember. I think I read somewhere it said it was the first film to actually come up with the idea or popularise the idea that a blood transfusion will, will save you from being a vampire, mm. um, which is, you know, a great bit of kind of modernisation. Yeah, I think you can also see a great it's great influence on a lot of subsequent vampire films because a lot of them have done that idea of um, vampires having to survive on the edges of society for hundreds of years, and the idea that people they they kind of gather together as as clans, which you can see certainly things like Buffy and Angel or True Blood, um, the ideas of them as being people who are just try and blend into society a little bit until a point where they can leap on someone and kill them and I, th- I think that's probably one of its its great influences over time is that it has really shifted the way that vampires are depicted mm, absolutely um, so often misrepresented they're just misunderstood <laughs> um, yeah I think that's probably our last vampire film we started with one we had Martin in the first episode and mm. uh, near dark to round things out a little bit of book ending there I like it. Um, the next film uh, we're going to talk about, uh, our eighth film of this uh, ten, is uh, another Curio, another film that no one seems to see, um, and a film starring someone we mentioned earlier, Denzel Washington, uh, in one of his kind of least seen performances. Uh, we're talking about Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, kind of like you know a film completely made out of time uh, a neo-noir way after they were fashionable um, a film uh, a character for Denzel Washington to play that didn't really fit with 
the kinds of characters he was playing at the time. Um, uh, a film made by a director who um, had kind of made some good stuff but really struggled to get any kind of recognition for it. Um, is it as simple as saying that people didn't care about films with all black casts? I kind of feel that that plays a part in it because the, if you look at that versus like L.A. Confidential, which came out two years later, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that there was that much of a change in the zeitgeist that two films that are both about characters in sort of Los Angeles in the sort of 50s that are both kind of working to solve uh, mysteries and that are very clear are noirs set in the daylight um, and that highlight the seedier side of, of Los Angeles history. The idea that one of them would become a huge success and one wouldn't and the only kind of difference is that one of them features a lot of white people and the other one is a predominantly black cast I think probably plays a big part in it. Yeah, and it's like I say, it's it's directed by a guy called Carl Franklin who um, directed a really great uh, kind of uh, thriller uh, called One False Move. Uh, which I'd also heartily recommend, but then kind of since then has just kind of lurked around on kind of premium television. Uh, he's done a lot of kind of cable stuff and, uh, you know, a lot of bits here and there, but but never actually managed to break out, which is a shame because his film work is is, is fantastic. Um, Devil in a Blue Dress, um, if you're looking for a kind of hook, is, is like we say, a kind of neo-noir, uh, with Denzel Washington playing a, a reluctant detective uh, called Easy Rollins, who, who kind of... Uh, He's set up in the film as one of the f- the few black men in America with his own mortgage, um, and he's kind of without a job and reluctantly takes on an errand for Tom Sizemore, which I will tell you now you should never do in films <laughs> or in real life, um, and kind of finds himself biting off more than he can chew um, in kind of true noir fashion, but it kind of unfolds in a in a great way. And uh, also kind of noted the second film on our list starring Jennifer Beals, <laughs> which I didn't think our film would be 2% Jennifer Beals. Uh, our list would be 2% Jennifer Beals at any point. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, just I, I really don't understand why no one has seen it or where where kind of things went so wrong for it, other than, you know, having to say, you know, the unpleasant truth of it possibly being because it's an all-black cast. Yeah, I think that it's, it's one of those cases where because it didn't really make much of an influence impact at the time, and has never had the um, revival that it deserves. It's just kind of fallen by the wayside, especially because pretty much everyone involved with it, certainly in the case of Denzel Washington and Don Cheadle, who are both uh, sort of very important to the film, have had such huge success outside of it that they'd never kind of, they don't seem to have felt the need to return to that style of filmmaking because it was not a success. <laughs> that it, it, kind of hasn't renewed interest in it um, and it's it's doubly a shame because if I remember correctly it's based on a series of books Yeah, and it feels like there was a, there was a really funny uh, tweet around about the time that The Equalizer came out and people were talking about the fact that it may be Denzel Washington's first franchise and someone tweeted if people had gone to see Devil in a Blue Dress we could have had a whole series of films of Denzel Washington and Don Cheadle going around solving crimes mm. and uh, that's a, it's a real shame that didn't happen because it would have been great to have seen a whole series of films about those two characters and set in that particular under-examined uh, part of American history. Yeah, and those two trying to solve crimes would be awesome because Denzel Washington's character 
isn't a particularly good detective, solves most of his things by accident, and Don Cheadle is a borderline psychopath who <laughs> basically gets drunk and falls asleep most of the time and uh, will shoot you before asking you a question. Yeah, he's a very interesting character because if you were to kind of compare him to other things, you'd say he would be something like the Joe Pesci character in um, every film <laughs> or um, or Jeremy Renner in The Town, but the difference is that uh, he's still really funny and charismatic. He's still one of the more likable characters. And usually when you have a character like that, their role in the film is to fuck everything up for everyone because they're the loose cannon. So it's very strange to see a film in which the loose cannon is clearly a very dangerous person, but he's also like one of the funniest characters in the film and one of the characters that you actually uh, like the most, even though at the same time you think, yeah, at any moment this could go very badly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um... But yeah, please do seek out uh, um, Devil in a Blue Dress and One False Move uh, if you have the means. Um, I really do hope that you know it gets reappraised somehow, if only in our small way uh, that we're doing now. Um, our penultimate film is uh, a film that also uh, uh, kind of struggled <laughs> understatement uh, at the time of its release. Um, we're talking about Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. say struggled at point of release ed we mean um it absolutely ruined michael powell's career yeah that's pretty much the only way to say it michael powell who had up until that point been one of the most respected directors in uh, british uh, in the british film industry for a very long time particularly um, from the 40s through to the mid 50s with his work with emmerich pressburger as the archers uh, they did a lot of, of really uh, distinct and unequalled work in terms of uh, creating these uh, vibrant uh, British fantasies, uh, stuff like, or, or works of realism that were touched with fantasy like A Matter of Life and Death or The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, these really, really fantastic works. And then he uh, decided to take a hard left into horror by telling a story about a man who uh, murders women, a cameraman who murders women whilst filming them and uh, it was a film that people decried because it was a, for the time, very, very violent and very um, uh, very sexually weird film um, for 1960, and uh, it, it basically meant that he pretty much didn't make another film for the rest of his career, and uh, it's a terrible shame because, you know, I'm sure he would have made some more really great films, but uh, the he... to kind of set yourself on fire <laughs> with a film like Peeping Tom is a pretty good way to go, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and like we say, it, it was it was kind of unpalatable in 1960. Um, it's kind of unpalatable now. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a kind of deeply disturbing psychosexual nightmare uh, um, about... And, and kind of t- if it teaches us one thing, it's responsible parenting, parenting isn't... Uh, filming your kid 
and throwing a lizard at them to, to frighten them because mm. it can only wreak kind of unimaginable horrors. Yeah, the prevalence of YouTube now makes me think that there's going to be a whole generation of serial killers growing up because it's pretty much just what everyone does to their kids these days. Um, yeah, I mean, it's even today, I think the voyeurism is, of it is deeply unnerving because it is obviously about a guy who murders women using a camera and films their dying moments with that camera and we see that through their eyes. So it creates a level of identification with the killer that at the time had certainly not really been done ever and even now is something that you don't really see there's always that level of distance whereas peeping tom uh, implicates the audience in the killings in a a very kind of visceral and deeply unnerving way um it's interesting to note that this and um psycho were released in the same year um but Psycho kind of went on to be one of the most revered uh, uh, kind of thrillers of all time, despite the fact that it had a lot of kind of psychosexual weirdness in it, whereas Peeping Tom ruined the man's career. And, yeah, you know, we had to wait for, was it like 30 years for it to come out again? And that was only because Scorsese, um, because uh, Thelma Shoemaker, he's a long-time editor, is uh, Michael Powell's widow, and they kind of got together and, and kind of basically got it released again. Yeah, I think that... I remember reading, because um, Powell and Hitchcock were very good friends, and they, they admired each other's work a lot, and I think I remember reading that Hitchcock saw the response to Peeping Tom and then used that as a way of trying to protect himself when it came to Psycho. For example... Peeping Tom was screened for critics before it was released, and that was a large part of why it failed, was that you got all of these um, moralising critics who came out with all these screeds against it, and that hurt it at the box office and made people refuse to screen it. Whereas uh, Hitchcock deliberately didn't screen it, for, didn't screen Psycho for critics, and made it so that only audiences could see it. And I think that the uh, that that's very interesting in seeing how the failure of one film directly led to the success of another um obviously at the expense of michael michael powell uh, and his, his potential future work but uh there's a weird and interesting uh symbiosis there even though like we talked about it being uh, in comparison to psycho psycho has a very famous uh some of you might have seen it scene set in a shower uh where uh, a certain person don't want to spoil it gets stabbed to death um peeping tom you know, has many other horrifying things that happen in it, but without ever once kind of going anywhere else but implying everything. Yeah, it's a film that is, again, it's kind of a film that exploits the audience's uh, identification with the uh, of the killer because the way that the killings are, are filmed, they are focusing on the face so you don't see what's happening to them outside of the frame. And I think that the uncertainty about seeing what's what's happening to them is the thing that really heightens how horrifying it is. Um, because you know that something's happening, but you're forced to imagine it in your own mind. Instead of something like Psycho, which goes to the very, very edge of uh, depicting the violence in a, in a way where you're actually seeing the knife go in. Which obviously you aren't, but it gets as close as it possibly can. Um, whereas... Uh, uh, Peeping Tom just forces you to sit there and imagine it happening. 
Yeah, and imagine it, you will, because it's the kind of film that uh, gets under your skin and you'll be thinking about for uh, quite some time after you see it, um, and not in a good way. So, uh, yeah, I'll leave you with that, and uh, yeah, enjoy that, uh, but not before bedtime, because it's quite horrifying. Um, the very last film of Part 8 of The Alternate 100 um, is an altogether uh, kind of cheerier affair. Um, another documentary. Uh, we're talking about Chris Smith's fantastic, touching, humorous, warm, uh, and lovely American movie. This is ridiculous. We started May 94, man. We've got every F-stop known to man in the film. <laughs> and right now, we got to take action, man. we got to go out to that field, put those scarecrows in on a killer slant. You know, they've been there for years. The farm's burnt down. It's going to be the opening shots for Coven, you know? And, uh... What is Coven? Coven's a 35-minute direct-market thriller film shot on 16-millimeter black-and-white reversal. Uh, it's uh, an alcoholic man compelled to go to this group meeting by his one and only friend left, but they're not that helpful, the group, you know? You know about the group thing? Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's what we're doing a film on. Coven, man. We got to get this sucker done, though. Seriously. Last night, man, I was so drunk, I was calling Morocco, man, calling, trying to get to the Hotel Hilton at Tangiers in Casablanca, man. That's, I mean, that's, that's pathetic, man. Is that what you want to do with your life? Suck down peppermint schnapps and try to call Morocco at 2 in the morning? That's senseless, but that's what happens, man. Um, a kind of very broad title, Ed. Uh, what's American Movie refer to? Uh, American Movie refers to a horror film called Coven or Coven, as they pronounce it in the film, uh, which is a low-budget horror movie that uh, a man named uh, Mark Beauchard, is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, Beauchard, Beauchard, I think. Beauchard, uh, is attempting to make in order to fund a, another film that he wants to make, this kind of uh, social realist masterpiece that he wants to make, but in order to get the money for that, he thinks he needs to make a short scary horror film and it's about his uh, attempts over the course of many years to realize this dream and uh, it's also about the uh, weird people in his life and uh, the act of kind of dreaming of wanting of of being someone who creates art and uh, perhaps not having the means or the tools with which to realize that yeah it's kind of a film that is like kind of about the triumph of the human spirit more than anything and perhaps the triumph of the human spirit above perhaps having the necessary skills mm. um and in uh Mark Borchar and his uh I don't know how to say this really his sidekick Mike Shank is 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 so um I'm, I was, every kind of second that he's on screen, I'm convinced he's a character being played by someone because <laughs> he is kind of just so uh, weird uh, that he can't be real, but then he's just too real to be weird. It's kind of it's, it's very messed up. Um, but yeah, those two uh, attempting kind of to make a film, one of them kind of passionately, the other somewhat reluctantly. Uh, trying to get these things done, being driven by Borchardt's kind of insane vision, um, is kind of one of the most heartwarming things uh, you'll ever see. Because uh, despite all the obstacles, uh, the fact that you know he doesn't have any money, 
his kind of production manager is on parole. Uh, you know, he lives with his parents. He's got kids. He's running on debts everywhere. Um, it is still um, probably one of the few films where you are so willing the lead character, despite everything, to succeed, um, even though really success is so far out of his reach. Yeah, it's a real kind of Don Quixote, Sancho Panza kind of thing they've got going on. Mm. Of the guy who is tilting at the windmill of wanting to make a film, and his kind of mate who's been brought along for the time and uh, along for the ride, and who um, I think their central relationship is the thing that's really striking about the film because you really get the sense that there's a, even though Mark is in some ways really really demanding, he's there. There's such uh, clear love and affection between the two of them that you you the you kind of almost don't care about the film actually succeeding. You just hope that these two remain friends at the end of it because mm. they clearly are, you know, just really deeply connected to each other. Yeah, and um, it's kind of crazy how post-American movie their lives kind of turn out. I mean, I'm pretty sure Mike Shank is still kind of having acid flashbacks and buying <laughs> scratch cards, but Borchard actually went on to do some bits of acting, kind of curiously, he's uh, he was in that Jet Li film. Is it called The One? I think he was in. Yeah, with him and uh, Jason Statham. Yeah, yeah, that's you know that's success of some kind. Um, but yeah, I mean, we feature quite a few films on our list um, about the perils of making films, um, and and this one is kind of re resonates with anyone, um, and I kind of include include myself in this who has tried to make a film with no resources and uh, with nothing but kind of force of will. Um, and um, it's kind of really kind of funny to watch, but it's also incredibly inspiring uh, that someone coming from nowhere that actually actually does get it finished. I mean, the, mer- the merits of it uh, can be discussed at nauseam, but um, he gets over the line. Yeah, I think it's also really interesting in terms of the time that it was made because... You know, we, we've talked in the past about uh, digital filmmaking and how it's been something of a revolution for people who want to make films but before didn't have access to a lot of the tools for it. And American Movie came out in 1999 and I think it was filmed over the, the several years leading up to that. And so you see a lot of the... You really get a sense of how hard it was to make films. Obviously, it's still difficult now but how much harder it was when you physically had to have a place to cut the film and you had to you know, get the film processed and everything and how laborious every stage of the process actually was. Um, I think it's very interesting as a, um, as a, uh, a snapshot of the, sort of the, the, the time period when independent filmmaking didn't mean buying a digital camera and editing everything in sort of in on your on your Mac. Mm. It, it's also like talk about time capsule and kind of where it was at filmmaking wise. The mechanics of it are really kind of there to see. There, there's scenes where they are, you know, cutting film with scissors and splicing it together. There's bits where they're trying to find offcuts, and I mean, the, this film is going to be alien to people watching it in kind of 20 years, people who are kind of growing up making films on, you know, on DSLRs and stuff, or on their iPhones, uh, are going to just think, well, obviously this is why we didn't do it that way. 
Yeah, it, the, the, it really is in its in a way that uh, is unintentional, but uh, is is a way that is really heartening in retrospect. It is kind of a celebration of the physicality of of that kind of filmmaking, in that you really know that someone is passionate about wanting to make a film if they're really if they're willing to go through the difficulty of filming it and then going into an editing bay for sort of 12, 14 hours to actually cut the thing and put it together using their own hands. Um, I think it's a real... It really does capture the zeal of that kind of um, handmade DIY filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, I think if anyone's looking to um, put together a kind of a decade programme of uh, what's the Sundance boom meant, you could probably start with something like Sex, Lies and Videotape and end with something like American Movie. Uh, you know, it's the first of those films kick-started that kind of uh, independent uh, revolution with, you know, people like Tarantino and um, Alexander Rockwell and, and uh, uh, Alison Anders and all those kind of people. And then kind of that is almost, uh, in a way, uh, catalogued by American Movie, um, you know, following a person who was inspired by those people to do the things that way, but it just falls short and it kind of... Um, won the, the Grand Jury Prize at, uh, at Sundance did American movie so they, that's, that's a 10 year uh, kind of retrospective you could have um, to highlight everything that was great about independent movie in the, in the kind of late 80s and uh, to, to kind of late 90s um, American movie uh, a fitting end uh, to uh, this episode so we've only got two parts to go of this um, and um, we goddamn will deliver them before the year's out um, so until next time it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me